Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the Enduring Word podcast. Enduring Word is a free online Bible commentary written by Pastor David Guzik and is used daily as a trusted resource for millions of believers around the world. We are honored to present the wisdom of the Bible to you, one chapter and verse at a time, to help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. Pastor David will continue teaching through the book of Genesis. Today we'll look at the first five days of creation, as recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 23. We are continuing in our study through the book of Genesis, and this is our third study in the series. Uh, Today we're going to continue in Genesis chapter 1, but we're going to begin at verse 3 and take a look at the first five days of creation. We'll leave the sixth day of creation for our next study. So let's go back and maybe consider just where we began with the first two verses. We're only at verse 3 of the Bible, so we can get sort of a running start and come back to verses 1 and 2 of Genesis, where it simply reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So after that initial statement, speaking about sort of a prelude to God's creative work, uh, you might want to regard it as a summary statement at the very beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That sort of summarizes everything. But then it goes in to begin to give some detail that we spoke about in our previous study. The earth being without form and void, darkness was on the face of the deep. There may be some sense of a resistance to creation, maybe some satanic involvement of that. But what we have is the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And it's as if we prepared now for our work of creation of the earth. And really, that's what we're talking about here, starting at verse 3, these days of creation. This concerns the creation of the earth. Uh, Not the galaxies, not the universe, not the stars, not the planetary systems, but what God did on earth. Here's the focus of it here, starting with what we call the first day of creation. Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. The first step from chaos, because that's really what verse 2 describes for sort of a sense of chaos on the earth. The first step from chaos to order was to bring light. Now, I find it interesting. That's also the way God works in our life. The Apostle Paul wrote about how light is brought to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's worth taking a look at here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, 
who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here we see a very conscious, a very deliberate link that the Apostle Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 between God's work of saying, let there be light and dividing the light from the darkness in the work that God does in bringing light to the human soul, enlightening that one to come to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God creates light. And how did God do it? Well, verse 3 tells us that God said, let there be light. God didn't have to fashion light with his hands. It was enough for God to merely speak the words, and this is my understanding of maybe a more literal uh, translation from the original Hebrew, light be, and there was light. Light came instantaneously. Light be and light was. And God did this merely by speaking it into existence. That tells us something about the great power of God's word. He spoke a word and the universe came into existence. Light came into existence. Now, because God created things, by speaking them into existence. Some people have said that we, and by we I mean believers in Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus, Christians, can operate on the same principle, that we can speak things into existence by our faith. Now, this is a wrong idea. We're not God, but they base this on a wrong understanding of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, or at least many of them. This is one scriptural support that is used wrongly in support of this idea, that we have the power to speak things into existence. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now, the wrong understanding of that verse by some is to say that God himself used faith in creating the world. But that's not it at all. What it says is, by faith we understand that God created the world. We weren't there. But we read it in his word. We believe what the word says. And that is the faith by which we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. So, Friends, get it out of your mind that the believer now, the believer in Jesus Christ has tremendous privilege, tremendous, and I use this term advisedly, power. God has given the believer great resources of spiritual strength and power, but we don't have the creative power of God. God has the creative power of God. And he exercised that power Again, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, let there be light and there was light. The book of Genesis tells us that light, day, and night each existed before the sun and moon were created on the fourth day. 
We're going to see that in just a few verses. Now, I know that that causes some people to take the account of Genesis say, well, this has nothing to do with the real world. This has nothing to do with science. You can just throw this into the bin of pure mythology, pure fable, but I don't think so. I think what this shows us is that light is more than a physical substance. Now, look, I'm no physicist. I have a vague recollection of light being both a particle and a wave. Look, I don't understand the physical properties of light at all, but I know whatever physical properties that light has, it exists also on a supernatural aspect. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5 tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will not be any sun or moon, because God himself will be the light. Again, that's Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. That is light existing independently of the sun or the moon. And of course, we know that the moon doesn't generate light, but it reflects it. So, if it's going to be that way at the very end of the biblical record, Revelation chapter 22, Why should we be shocked that it's that way at the beginning of the biblical record in Genesis chapter 1? It's also instructive to me that later on in the book of Exodus, chapter 10, as a matter of fact, when God sent darkness upon the Egyptians, that darkness had what you might call a tangible quality to it. It could be felt That's far beyond what we usually think of as being associated with darkness. Now, that demonstrates a certain supernatural element, which can be related to both light and darkness. I guess what I'm just trying to say is that beyond whatever physical properties light has, generated by the stars, waves, particles, whatever, There's also a supernatural aspect just to the phenomenon of light and the corresponding phenomenon of darkness. Now, verse 4 also tells us that God saw the light and it was good. Each day of creation in Genesis chapter 1 ends with God's declaration that what he had created was good. So here... God declared that the light was good. And I think this is a very important principle. If God declares something to be good by the fourth verse of the Bible, it tells us, number one, that God's creation had an inherent goodness to it. And this goodness remains even though the created world around us has been, in the vocabulary of Romans chapter 8, verse 20, It has been subjected to futility through the sin and the fallenness of humanity. Look, I I don't know how long it's going to take us to get to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But there was a goodness to creation that existed before the fall and still exists after the fall, though creation is marred. Again, I'm going to use that wording from Romans chapter 8. It has been subjected to futility. Sin and the fall has affected the created world around us, but there's no doubt that God could look at the 
at the existence, the inherent nature of creation, right there in the fourth verse of the Bible and say, it's good. But then this also tells us something else. For God to declare that the light was good tells us that there are things that are truly good. And friends, I just want to remind you, if there are things that are truly good, then there are also things that are not good. Here is a division between the good and the not good. We shouldn't think that everything blurs into gradations of this or that or the other thing. I'm not trying to deny the existence of some gradation between good and evil. Yes, we understand that. But there is good and there is evil. And this is reflected because God declares light good on the first day of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. But here's a third thing it points out. It points out the, the inherent goodness of creation. It points out the existence of goodness. But then also, number three, it tells us that God knows what is good. And that God's description of what is good and what is evil matches reality. There is reality to the concept of good and evil, and what God says is good is really good. What God says is evil is really evil. And we need to trust that what God says is good is good, and what God says is evil is evil. You you can think, and we'll see this again when we get into Genesis chapter 4 and talk about the fall of Adam and Eve. You can see how much trouble has been caused in humanity. You in some ways could say it's our only trouble. That we don't always believe that when God says something is good, we don't agree and say it is good. We don't always believe that when God says something is evil, we don't always agree and say, yes, it is evil. There's a great deal of significance here, just in the fourth verse of the book of Genesis, behind God's declaration at the end of the first day of creation that it was good. Now, this is going to be repeated throughout the five days of creation that we're going to take a look at in this study. Verse 4 goes on to say that God divided the light from the darkness. Now, most of the days of creation have some kind of dividing, some way of making a distinction between one thing and another. We, We notice this. On day one, light is divided from darkness. On day two, the waters of the firmament are divided. On day three, the land is divided from the sea. On day four, day is divided from night. On day five, sea creatures and birds are divided by their kind. And on day six, humanity is divided from land creatures. Now, later on, we're also going to see in chapter 2, woman divided from man. And when we take all this together, these show that it is important to God to make distinctions. Not everything is the same, and it is wrong and potentially dangerous to blur the lines separating distinctions that God has made. Friends, light 
is not darkness. There's a division between the two. Um, the sea is not land. There's a division between the two. And as we're going to see later on, men are not women and women are not men. There's a division between the two. Again, this huge tendency in modern culture to blur every line that would separate and make distinctions is fundamentally anti-God. Now, let me give a, I'm not going to say it's a balance, but it's a further understanding of this principle. A significant theme in God's great plan of the ages is the reconciling of all things in Jesus Christ. He speaks about that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. But this is the reconciliation of things that remain distinct, I should say, from one another. This isn't the erasing of all distinctions. So God does want there to be diverse things that reconcile with each other and learn how to live together and benefit from one another, but he doesn't mean them to be the same. And I think this is a very important principle, not just in these first five days of creation, but in God's ongoing work. At the end of it all, we saw it there in verse five. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, this gives consideration to an area of huge controversy. Many people wonder if this was a literal day in the sense that we think of a day, you know, a 24-hour day or approximately that, or if this day was what some people would call a geological age. You see, some people say that God created the world in six days, and other people say that God created it in six vast geological ages. You know, the world is so many billions of years old, and this day was half a billion years, and this day was another half a billion years, or whatever the precise divisions are. Now, I want you to know that there are Christians who take the Bible seriously, who disagree on this. I don't think that this is a matter to declare someone else a heretic over if you disagree with them about it. But but I would add this as well. Even though there is disagreement among Christians on this matter, in my regard, the plainest and simplest meaning of the text is that God created in six days just as we think of days. I like what Derek Kidner, a wonderful commentator on the Old Testament, I like what he said about this. I'm going to quote him here. If the days were not days at all, would God have countenanced the word? Does he trade in inaccuracies, however edifying? The question hinges on the proper use of language. Now, again, I understand that there's a difference of people who take the Bible seriously. So I'm not here to condemn people who would regard this otherwise, but for my own regard, and especially 
as we see this worked out in the rest of the scriptures, whenever there is a sequential listing of days, uh, it's referring to days as we think of days. Now, it is absolutely true that there are times when the Bible uses the term day to refer to an era. Uh, One example of this is the repeated use of the phrase, the day of the Lord. When you go through that, both in its Old Testament usage and its New Testament usage, it's very clear that what is spoken of there is not a singular day, but of an era. It's very true. But to my knowledge, any other place where the Bible uses a sequence of days, day one, day two, day three, whatever it would be, it's always referring to it in the sense of what we would understand as days. Now, of course, there's other issues involved in this. We don't have the sun and the moon until day four, or at least the light of the sun and the moon until day four. So people would ask, well, how would we know what a day is? Uh, All I could just say is God knows. God can measure out 24 hours or whatever a precise day would be without the sun or the moon to help him. So while understanding that some regard these as vast geological ages, and listen, you should feel free to investigate that that line of thinking. I, I think that the text leans very decidedly towards regarding these as real days. Which sort of brings us to the second day of creation, starting now in verse 6. Wow, this is a lot of progress. We're really blown. In the first two studies that we had together, we went through two verses, and now we've already gone through another three verses right away. Now we're at verse 6, 7, and 8, describing the second day of creation. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Okay, now, part of our difficulty with a verse like this is we have trouble relating to the term firmament. The idea of a firmament is of an expanse. That's how it's translated in the NIV or the New American Standard. Or the idea of a space. That's its translation in the New Living Translation. What this seems to describe is that the waters of the earth were separated from the water vapor in the sky. So apparently at this time, there were considerable waters which were above the firmament. Now, some commentators and scientists believe that here the Bible recognizes the existence of a very significant, some people call it a canopy, of water vapor in the sky. And this is an interesting thought. Because there are indications that this canopy, this blanket of water vapor that existed in the sky was 
part of the supply for the waters that flooded the earth in the days of Noah, which would indicate that the ecology of the earth was different before the flood than it was after the flood. Now, again, th there's some measure of that this is purely speculatively uh, set forth, but such a vapor blanket would greatly change the ecology of the earth. And Henry Morris suggests that there would be several effects of a vapor blanket. Here's what Henry Morris said. He said, the waters above the firmament thus probably constituted a vast blanket of water vapor above the troposphere and possibly above the stratosphere as well. In the high temperature region now known as the ionosphere and extending far into space. So what he has conceived is that this large blanket or canopy of water vapor high in the atmosphere that would serve as sort of the structure of a global greenhouse. It would help to maintain an essentially uniform, pleasant temperature all over the world. And without great temperature variations, there would be no significant winds. And the water rain cycle that we know today could not form. So there would be no rain, not at least as we know it today. And the Bible tells us that before the flood, there was no rain upon the earth. If this sort of concept of a blanket of water vapors in the upper atmosphere is correct, then there could also be lush, tropical-like vegetation all over the world, fed not by rain, but by a very rich evaporation and condensation cycle, resulting in heavy dew or ground fog. Morris also suggests that the vapor blanket would filter out ultraviolet radiation, uh, cosmic rays, and other destructive energies that constantly bombard the earth. Now, those are known to be the cause of mutations, which decrease human longevity. Human and animal lifespans would therefore be greatly increased. And then, as I mentioned before, a further consequence of this according to Henry Morris, is that a vapor blanket would provide the necessary reservoir for a potential worldwide flood. But again, this is on the second day, this division between the firmament of the sky, so to speak, above the waters, and then the firmament of the earth. A watery globe, so to speak, and a water canopy in the upper atmosphere. Now, I do want you to notice, and I'm going to be here, there is no mention of this being good. Not that God would say that it was bad, but there's just no specific mention of that here for the second day of creation. Now, let's go on to the third day of creation starting now in verse 9, where we read, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. 
and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed was in in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So evening and morning were the second day. Excuse me, pardon me, were the third day. So here, on the third day of creation, God gathers the waters under the heavens together. That again, back in the second day of creation, the earth was covered with water. Now God makes a separation between the waters that belong in the sea and the dry land that we would call land or the earth. Here the waters are gathered together into one place and dry land appears. And God says, verse 11, let the earth bring forth grass. Now again, all of this happened before the creation of the sun. And that's on the fourth day of creation that we're going to take a look at in just a moment. This means that plants must have had sufficient nourishment because of the light that God created before the sun and the moon. Now, those who propose that these days of creation were not literal days, but they were, in fact, successive ages of slow evolutionary development, I believe that they have a real problem here. Again, I'm not well-read in their literature, so I I'm sure that they have explanations for this problem, but at least from my perspective, it's hard to explain how plants and all vegetation could grow and thrive eons before the sun and the moon. Certainly, there's no modern evolutionist who would argue that plant life is older than that of the sun or the moon, but this is what the Genesis record tells us. And again... Many people wonder how the sun and moon and stars were created on the fourth day when light, including day and night, was created on the first day. And again, the suggestion is, or at least one suggestion, is that the problem can be addressed by saying that these heavenly bodies were created on the first day, but they were not specifically visible or perhaps not finely formed until the fourth day. Again, the book of Revelation tells us of a coming day when we will not need the sun, moon, or stars any longer. So there's no reason why God couldn't have started creation in the same way that he will end it. And so verse 11 of Genesis chapter 1 tells us, And it was so. This was the beginning of life on planet Earth, directly created by God, and not slowly evolving over millions of years. Now, there are some scientists who now say that life on Earth began when immense meteorites carrying amino acids impacted the Earth at a time when the sun was cooler and the Earth was a watery ball 
covered with ice up to a thousand feet thick. The idea is that a meteor hit the ice, broke through, and seeded the water underneath with the building blocks of life. Those building blocks of life assembled themselves into an organic soup. Now, however the process was triggered, the scientists say that life on Earth began in a geological instant. Now, when they say a geological instant, they mean something like 10 million years or less. In my own opinion, it takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe in Genesis. Look, I said it back in our first study. If you believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then the rest of it can be believed. If God is the creator and has the power to create such, to me it seems more plausible that this amazingly complex universe around us was created by an intelligent being instead of evolving all on its own, by its own power, by its own ability, by its own intelligence, by its own organization. And to my knowledge, again, I, I'll be very straightforward with you. I always feel a little self-conscious speaking about this because I'm not a scientist. I don't desire to become a scientist, but obviously where science touches ideas in the Bible, I have to have a little bit of reading. I have to have a little bit of familiarity with it. And we all know a little bit of learning can be a dangerous thing. But from what I've read, the fossil evidence is more consistent with the idea that life exploded into existence on earth instead of slowly evolving. Again, to my knowledge, what we have in the fossil record is an explosion of fossils instead of a very small, small gradual and gradually building over millions upon millions of years. Now, continuing on, on this third day of creation, verse 12 says that the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself. This is very interesting to me because it tells us that the plants were created not as seeds, but as full-grown plants each bearing seeds. They were thus created as mature plants, having the appearance of age. In my back garden, where this little place where I record these videos is set up, uh, we have a lot of wonderful trees. We've got a fig tree and two orange trees and a marvelous avocado tree. We have a pear tree that I wish, wish was doing better a persimmon tree, loquat tree, two of those, as a matter of fact, and I'm probably forgetting a few. Well, God didn't create a fig seed within a fig and then let that grow into a tree. He created a full-grown fig tree, presumably with figs on it, and then that reproduced. Now, this sort of answers an age-old question that's often asked sort of tongue-in-cheek with a little bit of joking involved. But people often ask, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, on this principle, we can say that the chicken came first. God created the tree before he created the seed. He created the tree or the plants or whatever they were specifically with the seeds built into them. 
And this was all done, according to verse 12, with each plant, with each, you know, organism like that, made according to its kind. This phrase appears 10 times in Genesis chapter 1. And it means that God allows variation within a kind. But something of one kind will never develop into something of another kind. And then at the end of it all, verse 12 tells us that God saw that it was good. Now, back in verse 10 or so, it says that God saw that it was good already on the third day of creation when he divided uh, the seas of the earth from the land of the earth. So, while the second day of creation has no pronouncement that it's good, the third day of creation has two pronouncements that it's good. I guess God evening it out there. Again, God saw that it was good. God knows what is good. He's not some vague moral neutral. He knows what is good, and he organized his creation to result in something good. Now, what I find interesting about this, and if we want to go back to the second day of creation, second day of creation, you have the earth existing, but as a watery ball. Maybe God didn't call the second day of creation good because the earth was not habitable on the second day of creation. And perhaps on this principle, we could say that God did not call the earth good until it became habitable, until it became a place where humanity can live. Verse 12 again tells us, Let the earth bring forth every herb that yields seed, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, I just need to mention this. And what a changing age we have. But there are people, especially when I was younger, who use this passage to justify the use of drugs, especially marijuana, because grass and every herb came forth at God's command. And believe me, I've, sometimes in doing evangelism, I'm talking, and people want to insist on their right to recreationally smoke marijuana. And it, well, it's the herb. God gave the herb. God said the herb was good, and marijuana is just the herb. And certainly, not every herb is good for every purpose. Um, hemlock is natural, but it's not good. There are natural things that are quite poisonous. I'm absolutely certain that God made the marijuana plant for a good purpose. And maybe some of that person is medicinal, but not for the sake of mere intoxication. Friends, don't forget that the use of drugs in this manner for the deliberate use of intoxication, it's nowhere approved of. And it's always condemned in the Bible. Matter of fact, the wrong use of drugs is often associated with sorcery and the occult in the Bible, and something obviously to be avoided. Bringing us now to verse 14, the fourth day of creation, 
where we're going to see the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. Let's take a look at that together. Genesis chapter 1, beginning now at verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. On this fourth day of creation, God made the sun and the moon, these lights in the firmament of the heavens, to be for signs and seasons. It says there in verse 14. You know, since the very beginning, mankind has used the provision that God made in the sun, the moon, and the stars to mark and to measure time and direction. These are gifts of God to humanity. And God, as it says in verse 17, set them in the firmament of the heavens. God knew exactly how far to set the sun from the earth. If God would have done it a few million miles more or less, from what I understand, again, from what I read, I'm not the scientist, but I know how to read at least a few of them. If God would have set the sun a few million miles more or less from the earth, life as we know it on the earth would be impossible. You see, the very intricate balance of our ecosystem argues strongly for the existence of a creator. We live in a very complicated, interconnected world, geologically, uh, in regard to physics, astronomically, all all these different aspects. It's a very complicated, interconnected world designed by an intelligent designer. I do think it's sort of interesting to take a look at some Jewish legends regarding some of these things. And Ginsburg, in his work, The Legends of the Jews, uh, he quotes a Jewish legend connecting the movement of the sun to the praise of God. You'll find references to that in Psalm 113, Psalm 50, Psalm 148. You see, the idea, according to these Jewish legends, is that the progress of the sun in his circuit is an uninterrupted song of praise to God. And again, according to the Jewish legends, the song of praise alone makes this motion possible. Therefore, Again, according to the legends, when Joshua wanted to tell the sun to stand still, he had to first command the sun to be silent. And then, when the sun's song of praise was hushed, then the sun stood still. Again, that's just a Jewish legend. I think it's kind of an interesting one. But again, God put the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky to be signs and seasons. This probably includes what we commonly call the constellations. Now, the constellations are actually referred to in the Bible 
under the ancient Hebrew term, the Maseroth. You'll find a reference to this in the book of Job, chapter 38, starting at verse 31. And there are some people who suggest, you can take this for what you will, they suggest that the sequence of the zodiac is the same in every language or culture, at least virtually every language and culture, even if the specific names of the constellation might be different. Also, the figures of the constellations suggested to us don't really look like those things at all, and maybe they never did. Yet the names for those figures of the constellations, or the names for the figures, roughly the same in all cultures, points to a common pre-Babel beginning for these things before the truth of the constellations was corrupted. There's interesting references in Luke chapter 1, verse 70, and Acts chapter 3, verse 21, that speak of the holy prophets since the world began. You say, well, what are the holy prophets since the world began? And these prophets may be, at least in part, the stars themselves. Psalm 147, verse 4, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, tell us that God has the stars all numbered and that God has a name for all of them. Psalm 19, the first six verses of that psalm, tell us that the heavens contain a message from God. Matter of fact, when you consider all of this, I think we could say that astrology is a satanic corruption of God's original message in the stars, God's message outlining his plan of redemption. And because astrology is a corruption of whatever God may have tried to tell humanity in the stars, then it's to be avoided always by humanity, even as it says in Isaiah chapter 47, verses 12 through 15. Now, on this fourth day of creation, verse 16 tells us that God also made the stars. And with all the other stars in the universe— Sometimes people wonder if there's life on other planets. Now, when we consider all that's necessary for the maintenance of life, as we know it at least, we can say that as far as we know, there are very few planets in the universe that we know of that are able to support life. When you consider factors such as the kind of galaxy that we have, uh, where the sun is located, the uh, star age, the star mass, the star color, the distance from other stars, the axis tilt, the rotation period, the surface gravity, the tidal force, the magnetic field, the oxygen quantity in the atmosphere, the atmospheric pressure, and 20 other important factors, the probability of all of these occurrences happening on any one planet is said to be, again, friends, I didn't do this calculation. All I know is what I read. It's said to be one in 10 to the 42nd power. Now, I don't think we can comprehend how big that number is. But again, it is said that the total number of possible planets in the universe is 10 to the 22nd power. So the probability of all of those things happening in any one planet is so small 
that the probability exists beyond the number of planets in the universe. Um, if there was life on other planets, then God's in control of that. But I don't think we should be surprised if there is no life on other planets. And that perhaps what we see uh, on our Earth as alien encounters, visitors from other worlds, may often be demonic in nature. Okay, well, let's leave that behind and go now to the fifth day of creation, starting at verse 20, where birds and sea creatures are created. We read here, starting at verse 20 of Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. God commanded, as we read in verse 20, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. We see the great variety of birds and sea creatures uh, that they were created at the same time. Uh, according to Genesis, here on the fifth day, they didn't evolve slowly over millions of years, at least according to my understanding of how these days lay out. Even though plant life was created before animal life, animal life was not created out of plant life. Now, it is absolutely true. Among the diversity of animals, many of them share similar structures. And this is fascinating, deservingly so to scientists. You have birds, reptiles, mammals, and so forth sharing many similar structures. Now, some people believe this argues for a common ancestor and everything evolved from a common ancestor. I believe it more persuasively argues for a common designer. All life did not come forth from the same primordial cell, but it did all come forth from the same designer. And these things that God created to multiply, as was true with the plants, verse 21 tells us that they multiplied or that they were made vast over the earth according to their kind. Again, all animal life was created according to its kind. God deliberately structured plenty of variation within a kind, but I, I don't think we have any evidence that one kind becomes another kind. For example, uh, structure among dogs is diverse. You have a tiny little teacup poodle, and then you have a huge Great Dane, but they're both dogs. They won't become mice, no matter how much breeding is done. There'll be different kinds of dogs, but they'll remain dogs. Now, evolutionists often give convincing examples of microevolution. That's the variation of a kind within its kind, adapting to the environment. For example, there's a famous study of the ratio of black to white 
peppered moths. And there was a great increase in the black moths when pollution made it easier for the dark moths to escape, to escape detection. Or there were finches that developed different beaks in response to their distinctive environment. What wonderful scientific studies. What interesting things to look at. But friends, the moths were still moths, though with a different color variation. The finches were still finches, though with variations in their beaks. There's been no change outside of the kind. Microevolution does not prove macroevolution. Now, we also want to observe here that in this fifth day of creation, there is this remarkable description of the fish and the birds multiplying. And friends, they have. I don't know why I was looking it up recently, but I just kind of want to look up how, how many birds are there in the earth? Friends, the number of birds in the world far outnumbers the number of people. I suppose the same would be perhaps on an exponential scale when it comes to the fish in the sea. They have generally multiplied just as God said. Now, um, before we conclude, let's talk a little bit about the fossil record. And I, I always want to give my reservations when I speak about this. Because I, I'm not a scientist, but I know how to read some of the guys who are. And when it comes to the fossil record, many people believe that the fossil record shows that creatures slowly evolved into existence instead of making a sudden appearance. Now, I know I mentioned this before in our study, but I want to follow up on this. But most people are unaware that in Darwin's, and I'm speaking of Charles Darwin, that great scientist who developed the theory of natural selection having to do with evolution. Most people are unaware that Darwin's strongest opponents in his own day, at the time he first published his theories, his strongest opponents were not clergymen, but fossil experts. Darwin admitted that the state of the fossil evidence was, and of course he's talking about his own day, the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. And he said that because of the fossil evidence, all the most eminent paleontologists and all of our greatest geologists have unanimously, often vehemently maintained that the species do not change. Darwin recognized that. And it's because... The fossil record is marked by two great principles. First, stasis, which means most species are unchanged in all their documented history. The way they look when they first appear in the fossil record is the way they look when they last appear in the fossil record. And again, we're not about every species, but most species. They have not changed into a different species. Second, the second great principle is sudden appearance, which means that in any local area, a species does not arise gradually, but it appears all at once and fully formed. Philip Johnson wrote, and I believe this was in his book, um, 
his, excuse me, the name of his book uh, escapes me. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Philip Johnson wrote this. You can look it up in the bibliography on EnduringWord.com in the Genesis commentary. He wrote, if evolution means the gradual change of one kind of organism into another kind, the outstanding characteristic of the fossil record is the absence of evidence for evolution. I think Philip Johnson's book was called Darwin on Trial. And as an example of this, Johnson points to the Bighorn Basin in Wyoming. It contains a continuous record of fossil deposits for what geologists say is 5 million years. And because that record is so complete, paleontologists assumed that a positive trail of evolution could be found in the digs at the Bighorn Basin. Instead, quoting Johnson here, the fossil record does not convincingly document a single transition from one species to another. And so Johnson quotes the evolutionist Niall Eldridge, who wrote this, we paleontologists have said that the history of life in the fossil record supports the story of gradual evolution while all the while knowing that it does not. Friends, either evolution happened slowly with each tiny change building on the previous change over billions of years, or the changes came as quick leaps, something like a mouse coming out of a snake's egg. But the fossil record totally rejects the idea of millions of tiny changes. And if we're going to say that it happened by quick leaps, that's just a way of attributing miraculous power to chance or to nature instead of to God. While I admire the faith of those who believe in what are sometimes called the hopeful monsters of evolution, it seems to me far more rational to believe in a wise, creating, designing God, just as we've seen here, in the first five days of creation. Now, in our next study, we're going to take a look at the sixth day of creation and following. But I want to conclude here with a look at how Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 23, points to Jesus. Well, obviously, it points to Jesus as creator. I'm not going to go into great depth of this, but Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, that's referring to Jesus, that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Again, anytime we look in the book of Genesis, these early chapters of God's work of creation, we come back to the idea that Jesus Christ is the creator. Not to the exclusion of the other persons of the Trinity. The work of creation was a work by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet, Jesus Christ is the creator. You can't say it any stronger than it says there in Colossians 1.16. All things were created through him and for him. But let me look at just one other way that the passage we took a look at today points to Jesus. And it's the idea that uh, the Bible speaks very powerfully that Jesus is light. Now, remember, we started here with taking a look at the fact that God said, let there be light. 
and light was separated from the darkness. And light was the beginning of God's creation, at least on the first day of creation. Well, I want you to consider that Jesus has this principle of light in and of himself. Oh, I'm not trying to apply for a mother that Jesus was created when light was created. No, that's not the idea. It's that Jesus has this principle of light. Whatever light is in its physical dimension, material dimension, particle, wave, whatever, it, it is also a spiritual principle which Jesus embodies to perfection but before light as a material thing was ever created. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Uh, Jesus isn't only the light, he's the true light, giving light to every man coming into the world. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus, the light, shined in the darkness of humanity. I like connecting that with the principle in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, that says, The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Again, you, you can tell the same person who wrote the Gospel of John wrote the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. Uh, because he's aware of this idea of the the light conquering over the darkness. Second Corinthians chapter four verse six says, "For it is God, the God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." Again, as we mentioned at the beginning, very much tying the principle of God's power of creation of light to the work he has of illuminating us, illuminating his people to bring light into their lives. John chapter 12, verse 46 says, Jesus' own declaration, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Again, Light has a physical aspect to it, most definitely, and the physicist can tell you all about it. But there's a spiritual dimension to it as well. And Jesus Christ came to bring illumination and light to his people. Then finally, we'll take a look at this last verse here. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Friend, I guess that's just my exhortation to you. Do you have the light of life? Do you have the light, the illumination of Jesus Christ in your life? You, you need this light. Darkness can bring fear. Darkness can bring um, the bondage of sin. The darkness is where things hide. God has beautiful light for you in Jesus Christ. He has the light of life. Would you repent and believe and put your trust in him? And if you've already done that, then you and I and everybody who names the name of Jesus, we have a solemn responsibility to walk in the light. To, as the New Testament tells us, to live as children of the light.
And when God said, let there be light, then he meant far more than the introduction of the physical property. He wants that light to illuminate our lives in every dimension. I hope that'll be true for you as you see how this passage points to Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, that's our prayer. I pray, God, that for everybody who hears these words, they would be illuminated with the life and light of Jesus Christ and that they would walk in the light as children of the light. Thank you for this great work that you've done of not only creation in the first five days of creation, but in the glorious work you've done in recreation in our lives. We praise you for it in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. For more information about Enduring Word and Pastor David Guzik, please visit EnduringWord.com or download our free Enduring Word 